This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. We are back! And this is the show that brings you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre. Happy New Year, everybody! Yeah, hi friends, welcome back to the show, and welcome to 2023! Uh, if you're a consistent listener, you probably noticed that we took a bit of an unscheduled hiatus around Christmas time till now. And Sean, I think we're glad to be back at it. Oh yeah. No, feels great to be in the basement where I have also been sleeping for two days. <laughs> because both of us are probably coming down with COVID. But I definitely have it. So I've yeah. been, I've, this not that my... I've banished you or, or there's trouble in paradise or anything. No, it was just... Uh... It's a phlegmy, noisy time. It's me sleeping right now. It certainly is. Uh, and so, yeah, this this the base this basement has been my uh, home office, mm-hmm. my home, and uh, my green screen prison for the last <laughs> for the last two days. Uh, so, you know, I'm actually excited to get out of the basement when we're done with this. Uh, but I'm really excited to have you down here with me in the dungeon. Well, thank you, Sean. Um, and we're not doing this show in in masks, but uh, that cat's out of the. Well, bag already, I think. Yeah, I'm already getting sick, so. Can't prove that was me. No way to prove that was me. (laughs) As Sean mentioned during our short update, we unfortunately lost my grandfather on Christmas Day after a couple years of declining health and then a couple weeks of illness before he passed. Uh, My grandpa, Nat, was also the dad of our father of the pod, Paul Ferrante, And uh, he was the patriarch of an uncharacteristically small but close-knit Italian family. He lived 97 extremely full years, including time serving in the Army during World War II, a long career as an engineer, and even longer as a brilliant hobbyist musician, and of course, a lifetime of being a loving husband, father, and grandfather. And grandfather-in-law, wouldn't you say, Sean? Oh, yeah. Uh, Welcomed me right in. Uh, Maybe, to this date, the only person who's ever enjoyed hearing me play the banjo. (laughs) He was happiest by the water, a love that he passed on to me. And it was always the best when he'd bust out a random story from World War II that none of us, including my grandmother, had ever heard. We were very close, especially since I was the first grandkid, and I was the only one till I was seven years old. And he instilled in me a great respect for and fascination with history uh, because he lived it. He began his life in the 1920s and he ended it in the 2020s. So that's a lot of history to see. So even though I clearly took things in a weirder direction, I probably have him to thank for my interest in the past. And in that way, he helped influence this uh, humble show that we have here. 
because almost uh, because above almost anything else, he was a hard worker. I know he would have wanted us to get back to it and keep diving into history and mysteries. But I wanted to pay him a little tribute at the top of this show because he was simply the best. And though you in our audience will never get to know him, the world is a better place because he lived in it. And now you know there was a guy named Nat Ferrante who loved his family with everything he had right until the very end. And along with that loss, Poe's been under the weather and uh, now looks like we are too. So 2023 is certainly starting off intensely. It, I mean, it, <laughs> but it's the weird kind of intense where you have to stay in your house yes. and the dog's not allowed to run around. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a lot of bed rest for a lot of a lot of the residents here. But we're going to try our best to keep up with the po- quality of the podcast, as we always try to do. And uh, we know that there was a good amount of news at the end of last year and into this one with updates regarding some of the cases we've been following. Usually there isn't much around the holidays, so that was kind of surprising. Um, so we're going to do a little detailed roundup at the end of the show to help kick off 2023. Ooh, can't wait. Well, you got to, because right now, we're not moving towards the future. For this episode, we'll, we'll be heading back into the past over a hundred years to one of the most famous disasters of all time, the sinking of the passenger liner, the RMS Titanic, during its maiden voyage on April 15th, 1912. Oh, Oh, so that wasn't just a Kate Winslet hankering you were having the other night. (laughs) I'm always having one of those, but uh, suffice to say, much like ancient Egypts and ghosts, the Titanic was one of those things. Ancient? I just want to point out that you said ancient Egypts, plural. I loved ancient Egypts. I love ghosts. Oh, well, you know. I love all of them. Pluralizing things that don't need to be pluralized. It's just funny. Um, (laughs) The Titanic was one of those things that I was absolutely obsessed with as a kid. Like some kids get really into dinosaurs. What was what were some of yours, Sean? Dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean Um, that was kind of the boy thing. uh, Yeah, I loved the I loved dinosaurs. Uh, I loved the Ninja Turtles. I loved animals too. So Mm -hmm. like Littlest Pet Shop was my favorite line of toys. I think they were made for. Uh, girls, if you're going to gender them. But uh, but yeah. even like past toys, I feel like kids, they kind of latch on to just random genres and they, they want to learn all about it. Um, so you definitely had some of those. Yeah, it was uh, dinosaurs and then, and then into animals. I had this world book thing that was a big binder that you could fill with little uh, paper inserts that you would get in the mail and had, they all had facts about different endangered uh, animals. That's cute. Uh, yep, my dad tried to get me into... Sta- my dad was big on hobbies, just mm-hmm. for the sake of hobbies, and so he tried to get me into a lot of different things, um, like stamp collecting. <laughs> uh, the the, posts, the Postal Service in the 90s had like a stamp collecting initiative to try to make it cool <laughs> for kids to do stamp collecting, so they had... Um, it was called Stampers, mm. and they had all these cool characters, which in... The 90s post office's estimation of cool, it was like universal monsters. But for me, that was cool. We have some of those upstairs. Those universal monsters stamps? Yeah. Yeah, so I had some of those in a binder, like a <laughs> little plastic stampers binder. And I don't think I ever bought any besides, you know, my dad took me to the post office to get my first stamps. And then I was like, yeah, I kind of just like the monster guys. <laughs> I think in that initial pack, I also got like... Uh, clings of the universal monsters that's cool where the tops and bottoms could be swapped 
Oh. And I think I liked the clings a lot better than the stamps. The clings <laughs> stayed on my window uh, forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe you should have just gotten into collecting Universal Monster stuff. Or paper dolls. If I was so into those clings, <laughs> paper dolls probably would have... But, Sean, I don't have to reiterate the fact that I was a weird child. I think we have two years of Ain't It Scary episodes to back that one up. Mm-hmm. But the Titanic was a particular fascination of mine that rose above a lot of the others. And one of the first things I really claimed as a kid and made efforts to research on my own. Now, of course, I know exactly where the fascination likely started. Uh, James Cameron's epic film Titanic came out in 1997 when I was six years old. And that was right after we moved to Connecticut. And I started to become interested in both movies and going to the library a lot more. And uh, those became very relevant to my interest in Titanic. That makes a lot. Well, there's a lot of books, a lot of books for a kid to find on the Titanic. (laughs) Yes. And as a six-year-old, I didn't see the movie in theaters, but there was a ton of hype around the film. And so there were a lot of book releases to kind of tie in to the release of the movie. And there were a bunch of television documentaries that I'm sure my parents watched. It was also one of the few movies that they went to see in theaters, and they both liked it. So that was kind of exciting to hear about. Um, And I'm sure it was one of those first kinds of events that I'd ever heard of uh, like this. And I was immediately fascinated by the scale of all of it both like the ship itself and just the level of tragedy. (laughs) Um, I practically memorized the book 882 and a half amazing answers to your questions about the Titanic and would drop fun trivia about the tragedy on unsuspecting family members. Is that fun question mark? Yeah, because I would be like, Guess what the exact amount of people who died on the, on the Titanic was, you know, oh, just fun nice. stuff for, for family dinners. Uh, I was a weird kid. Uh, when I was about probably 11 years old, I think I, I, I don't know if I played this game when it first came out. In my memory, I was playing it when I was in like the fifth grade. So what is that? 10 or 11 years old. Mm-hmm. So I think it was after 1996 when it originally released, but there was Titanic Adventure Out of Time. I've told you about mm-hmm. this and desperately uh, searched. I think on GOG.com, I think there is a download for like Mac OS. Mm-hmm. Maybe for Windows. I don't know. I'll, I'll see. Uh, it, it, point and click adventure game that like painstakingly reproduced the whole Titanic and you could walk up and down and see the Turkish bath and the the poop deck, uh, which was funny, and your promenade deck and your beautiful stateroom, uh, and there was like a mystery to solve, and you could prevent the sinking of the Titanic and World War II and the Russian Revolution. That seems like a lot to put on a kid playing this game. Yeah, no, for sure, and it was, (laughs) and uh, I don't think we ever succeeded, uh, Kyle Ryan and I. Oh, no. (laughs) Show theme composer at uh, at, uh, preventing the Russian Revolution. Well, I guess we have you guys to blame for that then, huh? Well, Anastasia certainly does. (laughs) When the movie came out on double VHS, my parents brought it home from Blockbuster. It was like, oh, we finally got it from Blockbuster. This wasn't three tapes? This was two. It was two. Because Schindler's List was a a three-banger, right? I don't know. I know Titanic, it ends when he goes, I think you may get your headlines. And it's like, please flip to VHS two. Right, because you said that. You had the double disc DVD at some point, or the double sided DVD at some yes. point, and you said, "Please flip disc." When we <laughs> yes. got to that point. Um, 
and I begged them to watch the movie when they rented it. I was already obsessed with the story, and I got through half of it. They they carefully covered Kate Winslet's topless body during the famous "Draw Me Like One of Your French Girls" scene. Oh, God forbid! Yeah, God forbid! I saw a boob. Like I was a a girl. Like it wasn't that shocking. Um, but once we got to the iceberg, I was out. Not because I was scared, but because of the scene right after the boat hits the berg where the boiler rooms are being forcefully shut with automatic doors to hopefully prevent the inrush of water, uh, I burst out crying because the movie made it clear that many of the men working in the boiler room drowned because they couldn't escape. Yeah, well, how did you feel about the movie from that point on? Because it's just wholesale death well my parents figured if she has an issue with that then the rest of the movie is going to be worse so i was escorted from the room for the rest of the film but this so was it, the part you were obsessed with the you f- knew how many you were telling people how many people were going to die well i think that's the moment when the tragedy really hit my then seven-year-old mind um you can't really conceive of those things as a child when you you don't really understand even death not as a six-year-old but as a seven-year-old you were wiser i was i was i knew this really happened but seeing the scene made it real and not just a story i'd read about even though it was a fake scene you know it was a movie it's still i could imagine it much like i could imagine myself assassinating abraham lincoln when watching that documentary uh, th- yes, that's right, that's right. <laughs> which you felt guilty f- for about for years. I did, I did. Um, yeah, the the ending of Titanic is really intense for an adult. It's a stressful. And it's like an sad hour of thing. that. Yeah. Uh, I eventually saw the rest probably later that year. My parents were pretty cool about letting me watch anything, but I'll never forget the feeling of just gut wrenching sadness when I saw that history made real right in front of my eyes. Uh, that's both the power of film, which I would go on to study, and the power of this tragedy in particular. Yeah, I was thinking about, I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to discuss this over the next three episodes, Um, but I was thinking about it while we were watching the movie this time. There's other disasters where more people die in a single thing, Um, but I think this captures the imagination because these people all... It's the slow, onrushing inevitability of the death. It's like it sinks over an hour or two. And everybody knows that half the people on the ship are going to drown, basically, or freeze yes. to death. And it's also, I think hubris plays a huge role in this, where it's not, it's not like a terrorist attack like 9-11 or, or like you know an act of war like Pearl Harbor or something like that. It's, it's an accident, but it didn't have to happen the way it did. Right, and and they said the word unsinkable like 5,000 yes. times in connection with the ship. <laughs> yes, so it feels like just the ultimate irony. And so with all that preamble, today's episode, we're finally getting to Titanic. We're getting to one of the stories that I've always wanted to cover on this show. And this episode will be about the backstory of the Titanic, who created it, why they did, and the establishment of, as you said, Sean, the Titanic's reputation as an unsinkable ship. And then next week, we'll get into the disaster itself, um, the final desperate hours of the ship's maiden voyage, and in part three... The the Chewy Center will get into the many mysteries and conspiracy theories surrounding the tragedy to this day. Oh, kind of like what we did with our Jack the Ripper series. Pretty much, yeah. Um, some sources for our series include the book A Night to Remember by Walter Lord 
1994 A&E documentary Titanic Death of a Dream, which uh, many Titanicologists uh, cite as one of the best documentaries made about it. And we'll begin um, at the beginning, the initial idea for the RMS Titanic and its building in Belfast, Ireland. So maybe uh, some of your relatives helped work on the Titanic. Oh, not in Belfast, Carrie. No. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) The world was in a period of incredibly swift transition when the first crumbs of the Titanic concept were dreamed up in mid-1907. The Industrial Revolution had exploded technology, production, and capitalism, and the second Industrial Revolution was well underway. The Gilded Age was still lingering, with the wealthiest in America becoming celebrities themselves, and huge strides were being made in the field of transportation. We now had railroads crisscrossing the country, and the first mass-produced automobiles were now on the roads. As the Titanic documentary Death of a Dream put it, shipbuilding was becoming the space race of the early 20th century. Everyone wanted to make their ships bigger, better, safer, grander, in essence, just more. They wanted their ships to be more than anyone else. Well, it sounds like they wanted their ships to be Titanic. Well, yeah. The next Titanic, right? Uh, Competition for the transatlantic passenger trade was becoming more and more intense. And you have to remember, this was an era before planes would make that kind of travel quicker and easier. Uh, To get to and from Europe and America, you had to take a ship. And sailing between the continents was seen as a whole experience at this point in and of itself. Englishman J. Bruce Ismay at this time was the chairman of the British shipping company White Star Line, having inherited the position from his father. It worked like that? Uh, That one did. It was a real Nepo baby situation. So it was a privately owned company, I guess? No no public shares and stuff? Well, at the time it was, but American tycoon J.P. Morgan, you may have heard of him, he, at the time, he was one of, if not the richest man in the world. He had just bought up several shipping lines, consolidating them into a massive trust called the International Mercantile Marine Company. And this corporation would be the parent to White Star Line. So basically, J.P. Morgan now controlled the fleet. He also, as a cutthroat financier, expected a heavy return on his monetary investment. Uh, of course he did. The Cunard line, a competitor, had just premiered their grand new ships, the Lusitania and the Mauritania, complete with four fancy funnels on each ship. Now, um, the Lusitania would be uh, shot down in the beginnings of World War One. Is that true? Something bad happened to the Lusitania, and it's uh, something we'll definitely cover in the future. I'll leave it at that. Okay, it wasn't killed by a German submarine? I think it ha- it had to do with the war. Yeah. Okay. So the four funnels was a big deal. These funnels would allow smoke, heat, and excess steam to escape from the boiler rooms. And as ships became bigger, so did their use of fuel. And four funnels at this point was a symbol of speed and safety. It was the best you could get. Because it's, like it's like the biggest engine on a ship. Pretty much, yeah. With the biggest... Um I don't know, muffler, (laughs) the biggest like safety. These are like mufflers on a car. Yeah, some shipping companies would even add false funnels to their ship just to get the look. Oh, that's hilarious. So just a couple of big cylinders up there that aren't smokestacks. Mm -hmm. 
The Lusitania and the Mauritania were the fastest ships in service at the time, and so there became immediate pressure to do more. Again, it's all about faster, bigger, better, grander. One evening at the home of Lord Peary, the owner of Belfast Shipping Company and White Star Line partner Harland and Wolfe, J. Bruce Ismay and Peary would begin to envision what would become the Titanic over some after-dinner drinks, as rich dudes are wont to do. All right, bro, hear me out, hear me out. (laughs) Five stacks. (laughs) Five funnels. The most funnels. Uh, They... That wasn't all. Uh, the, the Titanic would be one of three total monster ships, basically, to hopefully win back the passenger trade for White Star Line, which was flagging against the competition. The other ones that they came up with were the RMS Olympic and the HMHS Britannic. And that they originally called that the Gigantic, which is very subtle. <laughs> That's a George Lucas name. Darth Gigantic. (laughs) Titanic means the same thing, basically, but it's a little, like, cooler of a way to say it, because it's got, you know, Greek mythology in there and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Titanic would be the second of the three ships, so they envisioned putting the Olympic out to sea first, Titanic, and then Britannic. Ismay initially hoped to concentrate concentrate on size and spaciousness rather than speed, feeling that by making the ship the height of luxury, this is the height of luxury, they would best the competition because he might have felt that there was no way that they could beat the speed of the Lusitania and Mauritania. They wanted to sell the experience, kind of like cruise ships do now. Uh, the, the ships would be floating resorts full of the best amenities, the best food, the best entertainment. Turkish bath. Mm-hmm. And also because immigrant traffic to America from Europe was huge for these transatlantic ships at the time, a bigger boat could obviously carry more bodies in third class where immigrants generally went. Hence, of course, more money for White Star Line. With the backing of J.P. Morgan's cash behind them, Ismay and Peary had Harland and Wolf create plans for what would be the biggest ships on the ocean, Olympic and Titanic. And they would replace their oldest pair of passenger ships, the RMS Teutonic and RMS Majestic. The original budget for this project was three million pounds, which roughly translated to 310 million pounds in 2019. Okay, but that's actually, that doesn't seem crazy for, uh, like, if a big cruise liner was building the three biggest cruise ships ever made, you'd expect to hear that it cost $2 trillion or something. Well, those are pounds, so you have to think it's probably closer to, like, $600 million. I don't know how it works. It's not double. (laughs) Well, maybe in 2019, certainly not now. Um, Yeah, it's more in dollars, but... I think I've heard that Titanic, the movie, cost about $200 million to make, which was the most at the time. And so if it's like $400 million that the two ships cost, then it cost the same amount to make the film as it did to make the boat itself, which is crazy. Yeah, I mean, and with conversion. Exactly. Naval architect Thomas Andrews was the leading designer, and in July 1908, Harland and Wolf presented White Star Line with the official drawings. They were approved by Ismay, and construction began soon after at the Belfast shipyard, employing over 14,000 ship workers in the effort. White Star Line, for what it's worth, never 
actually promoted the Olympic and Titanic as being, quote, unsinkable. But that didn't stop the press from doing so. Shipbuilder magazine gushed over the various safety features on the ships, pronouncing them practically unsinkable even before they were completed. The boats were designed to stay afloat with any two side-by-side compartments at the bottom flooded at the same time, which was pretty revolutionary for ship design. And if the ship was to have a head-on collision, which apparently was more common, any of uh, any three of the first five compartments from the bow could be flooded without the ship sinking, or the first four compartments after the bow. It's very specific. Watertight doors also separated each of these compartments and could be activated with the flip of a switch, which again was kind of revolutionary, all this technology. It seems very particular, but these were pretty modern fail-safes at the time. As History.com puts it, however, the watertight compartment design contained a flaw that was a critical factor in Titanic's sinking. While the individual bulkheads were indeed watertight, the wall separating the bulkheads extended only a few feet above the waterline, so the water could pour from one compartment into another, especially if the ship began to list or pitch forward. So basically, if the ship tilted, it would be like an ice cube tray. The water would rush over each side. It wasn't completely cut off. Yeah, I saw a diagram of this once in a uh, in a book at school. Yeah. Yeah, it seems it seems crazy. It, I I mean, I don't know anything about shipbuilding, but why not just make it a full wall? Right. Is it just <laughs> is, well, you you it could be saving money, but also saving weight is so important Maybe. in your in building a ship. Obviously, so I don't know. After the break, we'll discuss more of the Titanic's features that made the ship such an astounding technological marvel and its departure on its fateful maiden voyage in April of 1912. Oh, the voyage begins. (laughs) My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Welcome back. Uh, When last we left you, we got really just started on our Titanic voyage through time. Uh, (laughs) Journey out of time, I think, is the the point and click (laughs) adventure game. Uh, And Caroline had taken us through the construction and, uh, well, I guess the conception and construction of the Titanic, uh, which was marketed as, not marketed as, but touted by the papers and the press as a practically unsinkable ship. Mm Mm-hmm. And you promised that after the break, we were going to uh, get right up to the point. We were going to set out uh, set out on her maiden voyage. Yeah, so before we mentioned some safety features that were considered fairly revolutionary for the Titanic's time. And other features on the emerging ship included multiple decks. And this included the A or promenade deck, reserved exclusively for first class passengers the B-deck with more first-class accommodations and luxury restaurants, 
the C deck, which included some crew cabins and amenities, the D deck, uh, where you have the second and third class cabins and some other amenities, and the E and F decks for more accommodations and crew berths, as well as the swimming pool on the F, and uh, the G deck, which is the lowest one carrying passengers, that was pretty much all third class. And then at the very bottom, the Orlop decks and the tank top, which were the lowest decks and they were below the waterline. And this was where cargo and the boiler rooms were located. Titanic itself was equipped with three main engines, which each powered a massive propeller. You may remember one of those uh, from that bit in the Titanic film where the guy go to was like, ping, off of one of them. Yeah, and the, the propeller rotates, but just a little bit. Yes. Uh, the technology used on the Titanic was the best of its time, including the aforementioned watertight compartments, water and heating capabilities, and radio telegraph equipment. For some of the passengers, it may have been the first time they'd ever used indoor plumbing. If I can... What do we mean by watertight compartments if they have walls in them that water can just sluice over? Listen, I I just asked the same question. I don't know. I ain't building any ships. Is it because it holds the water tightly inside of the <laughs> ship once it gets there? Maybe. Along with the previously mentioned amenities, there was a gym, a squash court, Turkish bath, as you said, a first-class lounge in the style of the Palace of Versailles, libraries, saloons, and more. Though the third-class accommodations were nowhere near as luxurious as the first or even second classes, they far exceeded many of the other ships at the time. Well, and you'll want to go to the second-class lounge to find the mustachioed American NPC who you can play poker with. This sounds like a game thing. <laughs> yeah, it's from the Titanic game. <laughs> One of the most distinctive features, and one you'll recognize if, you'll, if you've seen the film, is the first-class staircase, or the Grand Staircase, which was built of solid English oak and descended through seven decks of the ship. It was capped with a dome of wrought iron and glass to admit natural light to the stairwell. It must have been very stunning to see. Yeah, that's where when you die, you go there and you just see a bunch of people you haven't seen in 87 years. Yeah, on that not stairwell. your husband, but a guy you banged on a boat once. Yeah. Uh, so this, all of this was hand-built by the workers, carpenters, and craftsmen hired in Belfast. During construction, 246 injuries were recorded, with 28 of those being noted as severe, which would include arms severed or legs crushed, which is not fun. Six men died on the ship itself when she was being constructed, and two others died in the shipyard. A final worker was killed right before launch when a large piece of wood fell on him. So just a, just a big, just a bit of wood. The ship was a serial killer by the time it uh, left port. Well, she would claim many more victims. Mm -hmm. 20 Clydesdale horses were required to haul the center anchor by wagon to where it was sent by rail and ship to Belfast. Well, that's okay. I thought you were going to say 20 Clydesdale <laughs> horses were killed. <laughs> Each piece of rolled steel plate that made up the hull, and there were 2,000 of these pieces, weighed between 2.5 and 3 tons. So it's just so massive. Like a like a suburban. Sure, just like a suburban. 
Sailing trials began in May 1911 with two, uh, with 22 tons of soap and tallow being spread on the slipway to lubricate the ship's passage into the River Lagan. So that's a wow. <laughs> that's a practical way to do it. Literally, just just dumping out bottles of soap and yeah, and just trying to like push it into the water. It was then towed to a fitting out berth where over the next many months, the engines, funnels, and superstructure were installed and the interior was fitted out. So this was just like the... The Hulk. Yeah, the Hulk, the, the skeleton of the boat. Because of a few additions to Titanic that the Olympic lacked, such as the Café Parisienne, the opulent parlor suites with private promenades, sliding windows on the A-deck, and more... Titanic became the official largest and heaviest ship afloat. Yeah, Rose and Billy Zane have one of those promenade uh, yes. suites. So there are two of those that are just the, it's like A plus, you know, first class is like S class. I know, There's I have one those. In, in Titanic uh, Journey Out of Town. Oh, excuse me. Well, you know, I didn't think that someone who failed to, present the, to prevent the Russian Revolution would have such a fancy room. I don't know. Wait, there were two of them on the ship? Yes. There, really? Two of these super super suites. Yeah. Oh, only two people could stay at that level. Yes. And the movie posits this fictional person was one of them? Yeah. All right. I mean, we can probably... I mean, the game posited that you were one of them. Yeah, but we could probably look up the name of the person who stayed in that suite. We can. And I'll chat about it a little bit later. So these changes, along with a temporary halt in work to repair the Olympic after a collision in September 1911, extended what had been the Titanic's expected schedule. Had she finished on time, she may well have missed her appointment with the iceberg that fateful April night. And speaking of fateful choices, let's talk lifeboats. Oh, yeah. Now, this is a famous fateful choice. Yes. So first of all, the ship was seen to be the main lifeboat in and of itself. Uh, It had so many state-of-the-art safety features, they figured, we're never going to need any of these. And maybe it's the concentration on new tech that led the old standbys to be somewhat overlooked. Managing director of Harland and Wolf, Alexander Carlyle, was initially concerned about the number of lifeboats on the ship. He... um, originally called for 48 boats, and Ismay argued for the original estimated number of 32, which eventually was reduced to just 20. Oh, no, that is less than half what they started with. Yeah, it was felt that the boat deck would be too cluttered with more than that. And, uh, hey, it's a waste of space anyway, because the boat's so safe, right? But the problem was, aside from the obvious, uh, the math... Whereas the Titanic herself could carry up to 2,435 passengers and 900 crew, so total she could fit more than 3,300 people, um, that was not enough lifeboats for that capacity. Now, thankfully, in a way, there were only 2,240 passengers and crew total on board for the maiden voyage. 2,240 souls aboard, (laughs) sir. But that still meant that at most, these 16 regular lifeboats and four collapsibles could only carry half that amount if they were packed. Can I say, if there's one thing I don't want my lifeboat to be, it's collapsible. (laughs) Yeah. 
again, that was another like storage thing just to keep it out of the way. I think these are the ones that were um, kind of up a bit at, you know, at that part where like they're trying to cut them down. Yeah, and the, they're shooting Billy at the ropes Zane, and stuff. Yeah, Billy Zane's like running around trying to get on a boat. Those are the collapsible boats. Fabrizio's like, oh, I'm having trouble with this knife to cut through. And somebody hands him a gun. It's like, I don't know how much better <laughs> that's going to be. <laughs> Carlisle, it seems, didn't push after making his initial concern heard. And after all, at the time, at the, time the Board of Trade's regulations required British vessels uh, weighing over 10,000 tons to only carry 16 lifeboats with a capacity of 990 occupants. Because uh, they did it all by size instead of the amount of people. Yes, it's stupid. But yes, it, it, it is stupid. But what the Titanic was doing was perfectly above board. And the lifeboats were seen at the time to only really be used to ferry passengers from a slowly sinking ship to a rescuing one going back and forth. So you didn't need enough for all the passengers. Exactly. They weren't expected to carry the whole population at once. But but of course, they should have expected it. But that means if an ocean liner starts sinking truly out to sea, you're usually not going to have ships close by, right? Usually not. I mean, there were a lot more at the time. There were a lot more ships crossing every day because of the necessity. But yeah. So just two days after the fitting out was completed and eight days before she was due to leave on her maiden voyage, the Titanic's sea trials began. So she was supposed to leave like two weeks after she was finished. It just seems so crazy. It's such a tight timeline. Yeah, it's like a modern, it's like the, the it's like God of War Ragnarok's <laughs> release, release window. Oh, yeah. Over the course of about 12 hours, Titanic was driven at different speeds, her turning ability was tested, and a crash stop was per- performed in which the engines were reversed full ahead to full astern. On returning to Belfast at about 7 p.m., the surveyor signed an agreement and account of voyages and crew, which was valid for 12 months and declared the ship seaworthy. An hour later, like, again, it's, it's wow, so very tight. tight. Uh, Titanic departed Belfast to head to Southampton, England, where she was due to depart on April 10th. The majority of Titanic's crew contracted for the first voyage were casual workers who only came aboard the ship a few hours before she sailed from Southampton and were not familiar with the particular ship they were on. It's going to be a problem later. Uh, It would seem like it'd be a hassle, at least a hassle, and at worst a big problem uh, on such a big ship. Yeah, one of the uh, officers who survived the sinking said that he had spent a good two weeks just walking around the ship until he could figure out where he was at any given time. Two weeks. One guy. And everyone else didn't do that uh, because they didn't have the time. When it came to the chief officers, they were selected from what was thought to be the best of the best. Captain Edward John Smith, the most senior White Star Line captain, was transferred from the Olympic to command the Titanic. And some sources state that Smith was intending to retire after the Titanic's maiden voyage or perhaps when Britannic was completed. And so he can kind of feel good about handing off the reins. We're not totally sure if he was if this was like his last voyage. 
but it's certainly the more, more like romantic thought, you know. Now, was he named at all after our old friend John Smith, do we know? Or are those just oh, the I two most know. common names in English, John and Smith? Yeah, I, I think that's more like it. He's an Englishman, so they probably didn't care too much about Jamestown or whatever where he was from. Well, he was an English explorer. It's true. In any case, uh, it seemed like Smith at least intended for the Titanic to be his last ship. And uh, in a way, it was. Smith had over 40 years at sea under his belt. In a way. Well, yeah. Um, He had spent 27 of those years in command, but he may not have had the most experience when it came to emergency situations. So everything went smoothly under his watch. That's good. Well, he was the one who had been at command when the Olympic had its mishap in September 1911, which I mentioned before. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was going to say, you said mishap with the... um with the delicate wording of like, you know, you know, when Uncle Joey had his mishap. <laughs> well, this mishap was it colliding with the British warship, the HSM Hawk, and leaving two of the Olympics compartments filled with water and one propeller shaft twisted. And it lost a lot of money and it had to be repaired. But it didn't sink. No. And at the resultant inquiry, the Royal Navy blamed... The Olympic, um, they found that her massive size generated a suction that pulled the hawk into her side. And this was one of Titanic's sister ships. Yes. But we're still feeling good about this one being unsinkable. Yes. And and Smith was on the bridge at the time of the collision. So he was in command actively at the time. But uh, they thought he was doing a good enough job to put him at the head of the Titanic. Other crew members, like first and second officers William Murdoch and Charles Lightoller, were part of the Royal Naval Reserve. The vast majority of the crew were engineers, stokers, and firemen who were responsible for the engines and feeding the coal needed to fuel the ship, and also stewards and galley staff who attended to the passengers. Other professionals included bakers, chefs, dishwashers, gym instructors, cleaners. Butchers, candlestick makers. There were butchers, there were fishmongers, uh, postal clerks, musicians, all kinds of people. A printer was even on board to produce a daily newspaper for passengers called the Atlantic Daily Bulletin, which included the latest news received by the ship's wireless operators, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride. The passengers were the real stars of the Titanic's maiden voyage, however, including some of the wealthiest people in the world at the time. I mean, it's a, it's a wild list. It includes American millionaires John Jacob Astor and Benjamin Guggenheim. These are names that you see all over New York, museums, street signs. Uh, Macy's department store's owner Isidore Strauss and his wife Ida. Prominent Englishman Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon and and his fashion designer wife Lucy, silent film actress Dorothy Gibson, Denver millionaires Margaret Molly Brown, who was played by Kathy Bates in the film. Famously unsinkable. Mm -hmm. And a whole host of other luminaries. As in many things Kathy Bates is in, she is one of the bright spots of that movie. She's amazing in the movie. Um, there were also bankers, artists, athletes, socialites, heirs to fortunes. I mean, all different kinds. J.P. Morgan himself, who in a way owned the Titanic, was scheduled to travel on the maiden voyage in one of the two most luxurious suites. 
And uh, as you said, Sean, Rose's accommodations in the film Titanic shows how one of these suites would have looked. But he canceled at the very last minute, choosing to remain at a French resort. Oh, this probably will not come up in our third part about the the conspiracies. Yes, Sean, of course there are theories about this convenient avoidance of disaster, and we will get into that in episode three. And a very nice young engaged couple took his uh, his accommodations, apparently. I guess so, yeah. With most of the scheduled passengers in tow, about 50 or so were no-shows, the Titanic began its maiden voyage as scheduled from Southampton, England at noon on April 10th, 1912. Mere minutes later, crisis was averted as Titanic passed the moored liner's SS City of New York of the American Line and the Oceanic of the White Star Line. Her huge water displacement kind of did what the Olympic did. Uh, it caused both of the smaller ships to be lifted by a bulge of water and then dropped into a trough. The New York's mooring cables could not take the sudden strain and uh, snapped and swung her around stern first towards the Titanic and right in the line of collision. Wow. It's a very exciting start for the passengers. <laughs> this is thrilling. Terrifying. Can you imagine? And everybody's wa- watching the ship leave and yeah, waving. Yeah, seeing this. A nearby tugboat, the Vulcan, came to the rescue by taking New York under tow, and Captain Smith ordered Titanic's engines to be put full astern. The two ships avoided a collision by a distance of about four freaking feet. You know what? It's nice for the brakes to get a second test before we get out on the open ocean. (laughs) I guess. Not like it helped. The incident delayed Titanic's departure for about an hour while the drifting New York was brought under control. After this, though, the Titanic was able to safely navigate the complex tides and channels out into the English Channel, heading for its first of three stops, uh, the French port of Cherbourg. Cherbourg? Cherbourg? Cherbourg. 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 Cherbourg, about 77 nautical miles away. I don't know why I'm having such Cherbourg. 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 <laughs> and I'm sure a French person would tell you that I'm wrong. Yes. Oh, I, I'm I'm sure our one listener in France is very upset right now. We're, I'm, we're sorry. Um, so once they got to Cherbourg. Um, <laughs> now I know... <laughs> French listener, single French listener. I know that's not correct. (laughs) Don't email me. Email Caroline specifically. Well, once they got there, 274 additional passengers came aboard and 24 left the ship because they had only booked cross-channel passage. It was probably just like a little little fun little, let's see what this is like type of thing. By 8 p.m., she was back in the open sea, arriving at Cork Harbor in Ireland late the next morning. 123 more passengers boarded, and again, seven departed. Titanic weighed anchor for the last time at 1.30 p.m. and departed on her westward journey across the Atlantic and to her intended final destination of the voyage, New York. But her actual final destination, Carrie? Was uh, off the coast of Nova Scotia, because she would never make it to New York. And next episode, we'll relive the night to remember when the unsinkable Titanic struck an iceberg and sank into the cold waters of the Atlantic, bringing more than 1,500 unlucky souls down with her. Ooh, maybe we'll talk about what they had for dinner. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I'm excited for that part. Okay. And then that guy's going to hit the propeller. Bing! Bing! 
introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. It's the 2022 year-end news roundup. Oh, Oh, yeah. Doing it 2022 style. (laughs) Uh, Wearing a mask sometimes. (laughs) As mentioned early this episode, several stories we've been following in our news segments on Ain't It Scary this year received some shocking updates in the final weeks of 2022 and the beginning of 2023. So let's take a look. First, more information came out about the Idaho College murders, and an arrest was finally made in the bizarre case. So, uh, as you may remember, four University of Idaho students, Madison Mogan, Ethan Shapin, Zana Kernodal, and Kaylee Gonzalez. Oh, all sleeping in the same house. Yeah, they were found murdered in their off-campus house the morning of November 13th of last year. Not a ton was known about the shocking crime the last time we updated, aside from what we shared then, but we have a lot more details now. We do know, we do know now that one roommate had realized something bad was going on late that Saturday night. Quote, she opened her door a second time when she heard what she thought was crying coming from Colonel's room. Then she said she heard a male voice say something to the effect of, it's okay, I'm going to help you. The roommate said she opened her door again when she heard crying and saw a man in black clothes and a mask walking past her. She stood frozen and in shock, according to the court documents. The roommate said that she didn't recognize the man who she said walked toward the house's sliding glass door. She described him as five foot ten or taller and not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. That's specific. Could this have been Eugene Levy? <laughs> no. Uh, about too muscular, you know, <laughs> he's pretty tall. At about 4.17 a.m., a security camera less than 50, free, 50 feet from Kernodal's room picked up sounds of a barking dog and distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud. The bodies were found the next morning. Shaloub. Shaloub has bushy <laughs> eyebrows. Okay. After the bodies were discovered, authorities reviewed surveillance video and saw a white Hyundai Elantra go by the victim's house three times before entering the area for a fourth time at 4.04 a.m. We know now that they traced the car's travel that night, which is wild to me, back to Pullman, Washington. Is that, I wonder, through traffic cameras? I think so, which is like, wow, we're really living in the future now. Moscow, Idaho police asked the local authorities to look out for white Elantras. And on November 29th, a Washington State Police, Washington State University police officer, 
I guess on a whim, searched cars that match that description at the university and found one registered to Brian Kohlberger, who uh, became the prime suspect in the case. Kohlberger was stopped by Indiana police on December 15th for traffic violations while driving cross-country home to Pennsylvania for the holidays with his father in the white Honda Elantra, but he was released. DNA was... I thought you were going to... There was going to be some (laughs) twist there, like with his father in the trunk. No, no. There's like a picture of them just being like, oops, sorry we were speeding. DNA was recovered on a knife sheath left at one of the victim's beds. To test it, trash was taken from Koberger's parents' house in Pennsylvania to check for a match. Again, we're living in the future. Results determined that the DNA on the knife sheath belonged to whoever was the child of the person whose DNA was found in the Kohlberger's trash. So, and that DNA was Brian's father's. So, okay. Definitively, it linked them. So on December 30th, Brian Koberger was arrested in Pennsylvania's Pocono Mountains. Kohlberger was a 28-year-old criminology PhD student at Washington State University. <laughs> Washington State University, which is located less than 10 miles away from the University of Idaho. No motive is yet clear, but to me, this seems like the kind of case you see in movies. Someone studying crime, fancying themselves to perhaps be capable of committing the perfect one because they know so much. Yeah, like um, like rope. Yeah. Online sleuths have alleged spotting Koberger in video of a candlelit vigil for the victims at U Idaho on November 30th, as well as suspecting him for posting in a Facebook group about the case under the alias Papa Roger. Papa Roger? Yeah, P-A-P-P-A-R-O-D-G-E-R. Jennifer Koffendaffer, a former FBI agent, said one of the comments made by that account in the group seemed to hint that Koberger was behind the account once uh, news of his arrest came out, because the post read, quote, of the evidence released, the murder weapon has been consistent as a large fixed blade knife. This leads me to believe they found the sheath. And I don't think that was something that they told the public as the police are wont to do in an investigation. Right. So, yeah, we'll keep y'all updated as the case plays out, but this is looking like a pretty crazy one. You know, I don't know if the, I don't know if it fits the mold of like, oh, I I know it all so I can commit the perfect crime because there's a lot of really foolhardy behavior in there. It sure is, but it also seems like kind of narcissistic, you can't catch me because I'm so great sort of stuff. That is classic uh, murderer stuff. (laughs) He killed four kids. It's not like he had one enemy or an ex he was mad at. Not that we know of. We we don't know if he had any attachment to them. There's none that are immediately known by the public, you know, like he's not an ex or something that they know of. That's... It's a, it's a creepy case. Yeah. Next, uh, we might have another Paul is dead type of conspiracy on our hands, only this time it involves the queen of 90s pop, Britney Spears. Oh, this has been one of your bugaboos, Carrie. Well, it just keeps coming up, Sean. Speculation about the star reached fever pitch in the last weeks of 2022 when Spears seemed to disappear from the public eye following the end of her conserv- conservatorship and her wedding to husband Sam Asghari. Fans and followers began noticing that she was posting photos and videos to Instagram far less frequently and with bizarre and cryptic captions when she did. 
paparazzi shots of Spears became non-existent, even after she posted about flying to New York for a vacation. And images from that post seem to be recycled from when she traveled to New York a year before. Now that, so why would she lie about it? Right. That stuff is weird. Mm-hmm. Some followers began to dive deeper into her earlier posts and images from her June wedding to Ascari, developing a theory that many posts were duplicates from earlier posts or sessions. And uh, Spears may have been replaced in some images and wedding footage by a stand-in utilizing deep fake technology to replicate Britney's face. Oh, this is a lot. So they, she's posting <coughs> wedding videos and they're saying that it's deep fakes. Using- Again, it's Paul is dead, but for the new millennia okay so so it's like uh it's a stand-in but it's not plastic surgery or whatever it's ai so one of the possible explanations that people are assigning to all this is that britney spears is currently already deceased that is one of the theories yes of course it's very grim very dark we're not alleging that but that is a theory there are a lot of theories um Many think that Spears is hiding clues purposefully in what she does post, whether it's the images or the captions, if it even is her posting on her social media. Uh, One of these includes having a beware sign that just says like beware in spooky font uh, on the on like a table behind her that may be left over for Halloween. But it's also Christmas time when she's posting and there are Christmas decorations in the picture. So Oh, yeah. It's weird, you know? Yeah, you've never seen a house with Christmas decorations up and there's still Halloween stuff. Well, Brittany doesn't seem like me. (laughs) She doesn't seem like me. Um, To add fuel to the fire, gossip maven Perez Hilton shared a video in December where he confirmed that fans' concerns were warranted and that, quote, things are bad, but that none of the theories were on the right track. Some, as you said, Sean, think Spears is no longer with us in one way or another. Um, Some think that the wedding was a hoax and a cover to allow her to fully escape from her image and her family, maybe to Mexico. Wasn't there something weird with the celebrity attendees at this wedding, too? Yes. So there famously... There are images of some of the attendees and they actually, these attendees talked about the wedding on chat shows. They include uh, Madonna, Paris Hilton, Selena Gomez, and Drew Barrymore. The latter two weren't really like known for being Britney's friends and Selena Gomez met, said publicly she met Britney at her wedding. So it's not like Selena Gomez is like, you know, someone's great aunt that maybe the bride didn't meet. Like there were a couple people that I hadn't met from your side till our wedding, but it's just so weird. She's not related to why is she there? I mean, there are weird things, like genuinely weird things, absent of all conspiracy talk. And I think that's why people are coming up with these conspiracies. Uh, more people as well think that the Spears camp is creating these new photos and videos with deep faking to cover the fact that they no longer have control over the singer. And so they don't have access to what she's posting, but they're still desperate to use her reach for monetary gain. But then she would be posting her own, like isn't all the material we're talking about being posted to her official accounts? Well, a lot of it's duplicated from earlier posts. Right. Or a lot of it 
people think that she shot it in front of green screens and stuff like things things look weird about it but if she's not dead or incapacitated why would her like family who are her enemies be have access to her social accounts and she doesn't well because they had access in the first place so it would be would she have been able to get her social accounts back after the conservatorship yeah yeah, because they that, were. Well, I mean, they were supposed can to be you, hers. Her family was only running them on her behalf. Yeah, but can you legally? Is that part of the legal thing to like have to give them back? Yeah, because or I they think ha- it's, or they, could they hack them or whatever? Well, I don't know. That's called identity theft. I just think she would be in a position where she'd be able to get legal help with that. Listen, I don't disagree. I'm just saying what people are saying. Um, most recently, Paris Hilton, one of the attendees at the wedding, posted a picture allegedly taken with Spears at a mutual friend's birthday party early this January. But it wasn't long before people flocked to the comments section of the Instagram post to accuse Hilton of photoshopping Britney's face onto the image as it had an excessively smoothed out appearance. Of course, celebrities are famous for this or face tuning their faces into oblivion. Yeah, just celebrities. <laughs> What does that mean? It means people... Do, oh, yeah, oh, yeah all kinds. But, like, you know, the Kardashians are famous for, like, you know, bringing in their waists and making their butts bigger in pictures and stuff. Hilton herself responded by saying, quote, To all of those asking, some of these photos were taken on an iPhone, so they ended up being blurry. So they use this app called Remini to make it unblurry, and sometimes the AI distorts images. Didn't want to even dignify this with a response. But some of these conspiracy theories are absolutely ridiculous. That, I'm not sure what I think about all of this, but that seems like a an unnecessarily convoluted explanation. She didn't even want to dignify it with a response, Carrie. But then it's like, oh, so we use this specific AI app and like blah, blah, blah. It's like, just say you facetuned it or whatever. Like, I had a zit and I, I facetuned all of our faces. Like, it's just so weird. What, what did she what did she say the this AI app supposedly did? Some of these photos were taken on an iPhone, so they ended up being blurry. So they used this... Okay, like she doesn't have the iPhone 14 or whatever it is now with five lenses. Right, no, of course she does. So they used this app called Remini to make it look unblurry. So they... I mean, I assume she has like social media handlers. Um, and sometimes the AI distorts images. It's just such a weird explanation. And again... I'm not saying that something nefarious is going on, but like, that's weird. Right. Well, if something nefarious was going on, I just don't know why Paris Hilton and Selena Gomez are in on it. Well, some people, to get into it, some people think that they were there as a cover and she used the wedding to basically escape the country. Um, I could see Drew helping with that. Drew's sweet. Exactly. They're all like known for being like pro-Britney. And um, where was Leave Britney Alone guy? Was he at the wedding? No, he wasn't. Uh, I just don't know. There's also the fact that every video Britney posts, if it is Britney posting, looks like it was taken with a 2007 Nokia flip phone and like five pixels in it. Again, even though we're in we're in modern phone era, like it should look decent, especially if there's lighting. So. Here it ain't it's scary. We just hope that Brittany is safe, happy, and well, wherever she is. I think so, too. Um, and I don't think... It seems like she didn't want to be under that previous uh, conservatorship. It probably wasn't the best thing for her. I don't know. I wasn't in that um, situation. I don't know. I'm not in this situation now. But it's it's possible that she's just kind of 
a strange person, right? Yeah. I mean, she's definitely a strange person. Yeah, and she does have some mental health issues that are documented. But again, I think people are also not wanting to just write it off as that because that can be harmful. Yes. So, yes. Disclaimer, I'm not doing that. No, of but course. But as, as long as we're throwing theories against the wall, all of this could be explained by someone not being totally equipped to, to li- live... I don't want to go in that direction. To live an, a fully independent life. A fully independent life. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they, that's perfect. Prince Harry has been spilling some royal tea lately, both in his re- recently released memoir, Spare, and on the book's extensive press tour. Here are some heavy tidbits. Uh, for a long time, Harry wondered and hoped that his mother, Princess Diana, was still alive somewhere and had escaped the press attention by faking her death Tupac style. Years after her death, Harry asked to see the secret police files related to the crash as a kind of proof to himself that she was really gone. On 60 Minutes, he told Anderson Cooper, quote, William and I considered reopening the inquest because there were so many gaps and so many holes in it, which just didn't add up and didn't make sense. He also stated that he didn't feel like he has all the answers about what happened to Diana. Well, we felt the same way, Carrie, mm-hmm. looking at the evidence. Both Harry and William begged Charles not to come mar- uh, not to come marry, not to marry Camilla. Harry wrote, quote, when asked, Willie and I promised Pa that we'd welcome Camilla into the family. The pa. only Yeah. And he calls William Willie. Like they're all in a log cabin wearing <laughs> long underwear. Yeah. The only thing we asked in return was that he not marry her. You don't need to remarry, we pleaded. We support you, we said. We endorse Camilla, we said. Just please don't marry her. Obviously, he didn't listen. Uh, As is his right. Uh, He also wrote that he killed 25 Taliban fighters during his time in Afghanistan. And he said um, on Stephen Colbert that he did so because he wanted to, he he feels very passionately about veterans and about um, mental health when it comes to PTSD and veteran trauma. And so he wanted to normalize it. I mean, he said he wanted a lot of soldiers kill people in combat. And so he wanted to, to be open about that. But the British press uh, published that snippet without any context uh, and acted like he was boasting about like his kill count. Yeah, like look how many guys I bagged. Yeah. Um. He he. Yeah. He said Don Colbert at least I haven't read the book that he uh, wanted to make less people kill themselves. Yeah. Uh, he calls his brother Prince William's hair loss quote alarming, which I think is the most hilariously British read I've ever heard. And he notes that it's he explicitly that it's more advanced than his own. <laughs> yes. Like, what a shitty... <laughs> and I lo- uh, he was in an, one of the interviews with uh, somebody... It wasn't the Cooper one, but one of the interviews with a serious person. He was like... <laughs> um, it was like, oh, no, maybe it was Anderson Cooper. Yeah, and he, he goes, don't you see that? You don't see that as cutting? And he goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, what? it's true. I mean, it's true. And uh, family members were whisked to Balmoral by private plane upon receiving news of the Queen's failing health. But Harry, who was coincidentally in London at the time for a charity event, was not invited to accompany them on the plane. And because of this, by the time he made it to Balmoral, his grandmother was already dead, which is just fucking awful. Um was really terrible and there's no way to interpret that except they made a decision yes he's not in the family he doesn't get to come on the plane yes 
Now, some people in, in the public say that this is all TMI. Harry and Meghan are ungrateful gold diggers, well, blah, blah, blah. British public, surely. America, the American certainly public British care. public. But there are some, there are certainly some Americans saying those things. Uh, but personally, with all the research I've done about the royals, both past and present, I pretty much buy most of what he says, um, at least in, in terms of their actions and their interaction with the press and them using the press to their advantage. Do you believe his grandmother never hugged him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I believe that. And I also think in so many words that Harry is seeming to be trying his best to be a genuine and better person. So I hope he finds the piece he's looking for. And for sure, I hope the royals learn some kind of lesson from all this. Yeah, you were talking when we were watching that Colbert segment about how much uh, therapy he's clearly internalized. Absolutely. And like I said, when we were watching that, he's dealing with his emotions now in a very American way, which I'm sure Megan had some influence on and living here, of course. Uh, he's not repressing them anymore. And I think that's very terrifying to the establishment over there. Uh, and finally, this is not an update, but a new story. Anna Walsh, a mother of three from Cohasset, Massachusetts, was reported missing on January 4th, four days after she was last seen leaving her home in the coastal New England town. Husband Brian Walsh was arrested on January 8th of a single charge of misleading police during the investigation into Anna's whereabouts and pleaded not guilty at his court hearing on Monday. During this court appearance, prosecutors alleged that on January 2nd, Brian was captured on Home Depot surveillance footage, spending $450 on cleaning products, including mops and tarps, despite telling authorities he was 40 miles away visiting a Whole Foods and CVS. People, people, people are stupid. You can't, everyone knows what you bought. Yeah. Everyone knows what you bought. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't make the, the purchases separately over time in the months leading up to a murder yeah, what are like, you doing like you uh, exactly i mean again like we're not rooting him to get away with murder but it's just so stupid it's so obviously stupid yeah, oh and that reminded me to make my monthly amazon order hold on <laughs> this wasn't brian's only recent court appearance in 2021 walsh pled guilty to selling fake andy warhol paintings in 2018 and he's currently awaiting sentencing for that Three cans of turpentine, rubber <laughs> clown mask. However, police have said that there does not to be, uh, appear to be any connection with Anna's disappearance. According to People magazine, quote, Anna was last seen leaving her home on New Year's Day. A family member who was at the home said they saw Anna around 4 or 5 a.m. on January 1st. Um, they were told she was trying to catch a flight to Washington, D.C. for a work-related trip and that she used a rideshare service to get to the airport. Uh, the police chief, when sharing this information, added that they had not been able to confirm that she was actually picked up by a rideshare service, but they do know she never boarded any flight from Logan Airport. And according to police, she had a flight booked for January 3rd, but it's been reported that she was called to D.C. to handle some sort of emergency. So the husband's plan must have been he can pin this on a... No. I think I think did, the plan did, I think the plan might have been to lure her from the house somehow under the guise of this and buy himself time with people thinking she was in another state. But then I don't know how much of a plan there was after that. 
Anna was reported missing on the 4th by both Brian and her employer when she didn't show up for work. So again, obviously there wasn't an emergency in D.C. CNN recently reported that during the police's search of the Walsh's home in Cohasset, investigators found search queries on Brian's internet records oh, for, boy. quote, how to dispose of a 115-pound woman's body. No, the specificity. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, quote, how to dismember a body. So unlike, uh, unless you're like a film writer and a horror writer or uh, true crime podcaster like me. Yeah, I love you carving it out for yourself on this one. That's good. Well, I routine have, routinely have to Google some stuff that probably has me on some sort of FBI database, uh, especially when we were doing like spontaneous human combustion, you know, temperature that a body burns at, stuff like yes, that. Yes, if you're writing a crime story, you need to look up details on how chloroform works on people. Yeah, I've looked up um, rat poison, how to counter rat poison, like... I'm definitely on a database somewhere. Um, but if you're a normal person, those are not the kind of searches that should be on your history. Certainly not right before your wife went missing yeah. during her emergency visit to another state. Yeah, it's very gone girl. On January 10th, law enforcement sources told news outlets that investigators reportedly recovered a series of cutting instruments during a search for Anna. In addition to finding a bloody knife in the basement of her home, the investigation on January 9th led authorities to a trash site in Peabody, Massachusetts, according to WBZ-TV and WHDH-TV. That's pretty close to Salem, where we go all the time. Uh, citing unnamed sources, both stations reported investigators recovered a hatchet, hacksaw, rug, and garbage bag uh, that were bloodied, believed to be connected to Anna's disappearance. And also citing unnamed sources, WFXT-TV reported human tissue was also discovered during the search. And we'll keep you updated on this case, and we hope against hope that Anna can be found safe and sound. I... Unfortunately, I, I echo those hopes, but I don't think that that's the way this one's going. I, th I think it seems pretty clear. play out. Uh, at least the structure of what happened. Yeah. The, the motive and everything. It's kind of like Scott and Lacey Peterson. It's, it's you know, that's the story. So I guess we'll be hearing that soon. Yeah, the, the tragic part has happened. I do, I guess I sort of look forward to what I assume will be a laundry list of further stupid errors this guy made. Oh, of course. You hope so. <laughs> I do. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. And just to let you guys know... Uh, we did run polls on Twitter and Patreon and Instagram about who would win Christmas, me or Sean. Oh, uh, oh no, I haven't checked the latest tallies, <laughs> yeah. although they were all going in one direction. <laughs> well, from our most recent episode, uh, Ain't It Scary Saves Christmas, I think. Yes. Um, and we did. And you got a lot of sh votes, Sean. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but... Uh, the Wonderful World of Disney Presents Christmas Sleigh, and my film did win. 
but you you were very respectful in your showing. Excellent. How many people voted uh, total in that? I don't have the numbers in front of me. I'm very I'm very excited to see the the total the totals and uh, you know what go check out those posts on the on the old socials because I we both made pretty cool posters yeah I think I made a pretty fun poster and then Carrie went up to me with hers frankly well so, you made yours first so I was able to like copy yours and add things to it <laughs> <she's> <laughs> which honest. is what I did with our Tinder profiles too back in the that's day that's true <laughs> oh when I looked back at yours after we first matched I was like wait a second well I like the cut of your jib sunny boy. <laughs> Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, who I was just playing board games with all weekend. Hi, Jared. And it's not even a Patreon perk. (laughs) No, that's not a Patreon perk. That's just, uh, uh, I mean, I play games with Alex, too. Anyone who wants to play games with me, give me a call. (laughs) Um, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Ira, Kate Pope, and Haley. We love you all. And... um, and congrats to Kate for finally catching up on all of the episodes. Oh, I was so excited to see that. Yeah, so she's listening to this uh, just just fresh, hot and fresh out the kitchen. Oh, oh boy. Oh, we don't talk about him anymore. All right, well, thank you, Kate. And see you all next Thursday. <laughs> show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.